Hey everybody, this is our Exhibit A show where we interview attorneys and other experts across the country about what it takes to truly be the Exhibit A of a successful attorney. That's why I'm super excited to have Sharon Christie here. For those of you that don't know her, she's a nurse, lawyer, and an entrepreneur, was an associate in a big law firm, a partner in a small law firm, owned her own solo practice for 16 years. She's made every mistake you can make in creating and running your own firm. And now she's a business coach to women in solo and small firm practitioners to help make sure they avoid those same mistakes that she went through. She helps her clients get a steady stream of great clients so they can skyrocket revenue and profits and love their law practice, uh, which is why I'm so excited. We're going to talk about the three M's of solo and small firm success, the mindset, the marketing, and the management. Uh, before we dive into that with Sharon, I do want to talk about our last episode. Uh, last week, we had Steve Fretzen on. Steve talked to us about legal business development not being rocket science, shared with us his latest book, Legal Business Development Isn't Rocket Science. So obviously those things go hand in hand. But enough about that, Sharon, I want to dive in. Um, tell us a little bit more about your background. Oh, sure. Well, as you, as you said, I, I started out not as a lawyer. I started out as a nurse, found that not to be um, the best uh, match for me in terms of long-term for a career. Went to law school, got out, got with what was considered at that point a big firm uh, in Baltimore, which is where I'm from. And you know, was there for a few years. It was at the time great training as a trial lawyer, but my heart was not on the defense side. It was really on the plaintiff side. So I switched, ultimately became a partner in a small PI firm. We did a lot of PI uh, MedMal and some products cases. Um, and that was great for a while uh, and I enjoyed it, but to my surprise, um, and I think a lot of lawyers reach this point, I reached the point where I said, if I never try another case, if I never have to go argue another motion, if I never have to respond to interrogatories, that would be okay. I, I would be okay with that. And, and it was at that time that my former partners and I had a very amicable divorce. We all wanted to go separate ways, doing separate things. And I started looking for what else can I do? I enjoy being a lawyer. It wasn't being the lawyer it was the litigation that I was doing and I just didn't want to do it anymore. Um, I was fortunate that I had uh, someone I knew who did all disability work and brought me in because she needed help with her cases. And so that's how I got exposed to it. Uh, and I realized right away, like, this is it for me. This is really what I want to do. So I, from that point, started working towards building up my own disability practice. And I went from zero, literally zero disability clients to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, which you have to, because it is a high volume practice. So to make that type of practice work, you have to have a high volume of cases. Um, and as I said, I made every mistake you could make along the way. And, and I can laugh about it now. I wasn't laughing so much at the time, but, uh, but I did. And so after 16 years of a solo practice, it was great, but it was time for me to move on. So I sold the practice and then launched a coaching business for, and I focus on women in solo and small firm practices because I think that, you know, I say to pe people are like, you know, like men, I'm like, no, men are great. I married one. I love men. I think they're fabulous. But from a solo and small firm as a lawyer point of view, women have some issues that men don't have. 
um, we approach problems in a different way. And so I focus on working with women to help them avoid the mistakes that I made. So I've got to ask the, uh, the follow-up question. So uh, funny story. Uh, we just switched over our phones to Vonage. And so Vonage has this whole thing they have you do. Tell us more about you. And one of them is revenue numbers. And the lowest revenue number is under $50 million. And I was like, I'm, you know, somewhat under that number. Um, so when you say small firms, I'm just curious, like, what is the size of a small firm that you're working with? That's a great question, because to me, small firm is up to five lawyers. Okay, it is not how the rest of the world defines small business, but that to, that's what I mean when I say small firm. Gotcha. All right. So before we dive into mindset and then marketing and then management, talk to me a little bit more about from the female firm owner perspective, what are some of those different problems that you see? Well, first of all, there's issues related to uh, uh, women uh, law firm owners who have children and they may be single parents and, and, and it's not that dads don't have some issues too, but they may be the single parent or they, you know, may have a spouse, but much of the child care falls on them if the child gets sick or making sure the child gets to the various activities or wanting to be present as a lot of men do too, but wanting to be present for certain activities. And you run into issues because the type of law you practice may not lend itself very easily to you being able to change your schedule around so you can be at the soccer game or you can pick up the sick child or you can stay home with the sick child. Although we've made, thanks to COVID, tremendous progress with that, I think. But, but you need, it, it, frequently you need more flexibility. And, and not all areas of law practice allow for that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we're so, I'm in Florida, which I think we only really acknowledge COVID for about two weeks, but from the court <laughs> system standpoint, we've done a little bit better of a job. Um, and it's interesting because there are still, like every county has one or two judges that are like, no, we're going back to full in-person. And I really, like, I really had in my mind the perspective of like the older judge who's been on the bench so long. And that's for a couple of them, but it's not as consistent um, along those lines as I thought it would be in terms of which judges are kind of ruining the COVID lifestyle. But anyway. And, and I think we all learned, I learned very quickly that, I mean, I had for a very long time, rarely had clients actually come to the office. Um, and that was because they're disabled and you don't need to get in the car and come to my office. We can handle everything we need to do over the phone with the exception of the uh, hearing with the judge. So for a long time, we were already there in my office, but we had not switched over to remote work. And, you know, then it was forced on us. I laugh because in Maryland, where I am, the governor said, lawyers are an essential business. And I laughed and said, oh, said no one ever, but, you know, we're an essential business, so technically we could stay open. But we didn't because my staff wasn't comfortable with it. I got that. But we learned very quickly, like, there is so much we can do remotely. And not having to drive to hearings, it's like, this is heaven. I am saving so much time not being in my car. Uh, although I missed the, some of the in-person it was great from an efficiency point of view. I loved it. So I'm surprised, I, I am surprised that judges don't always recognize that because it must be more efficient for them too. Well, I, 
I don't know. I mean, there's, it is, it is interesting to me to see how different counties have implemented different technology to make it easier and harder. So I understand from that perspective. And then, you know, there's that feeling of, you know, being in court that sometimes gets a case resolved a certain way or gets people to take it more seriously. So, you know, I'm cognizant of all those things. I just think it's, yeah. it's always funny, you know, from a uh, former criminal defense attorney standpoint or a formal prosecutor, you'd have like 300 cases all called up at the same time and all everybody else would have to be in four different courtrooms with all their stuff in different counties. And so, I don't know, it, it is what it is. And hopefully yeah. we'll uh, keep some of the benefits of this. So I want to dive into the mindset part and mindset being first, I think makes so much sense before we get into the marketing, before we get into the management, because ultimately like we have to have, we need to build ourselves in the position to build a successful firm. I think I'm curious to get your take on the mindset portion of all this. Yeah, I think, you know, as you work with people, there's some individual issues related to their mindset, but there's three things that I see coming up regularly. The first and most important to me is, are you the CEO of your law business or are you an employee of your law firm? Because you're either acting like a CEO or you're acting like an employee. And it makes a huge difference as to where you're going and where you're going to end up. And so learning that, oh, well, I mean, I'm an employee because I'm doing work like an employee would do, but I'm the CEO. I'm in charge of not just the vision, like how are we going to get there? What team am I going to build to get us there? What help do I need? What can I delegate? What do I have to keep to myself, et cetera, et cetera. And thinking like a CEO would think and acting like a CEO would act. And that... For most people that I've that I've known and that I work with, that's not natural, and it's something that you have to work on. But the first, the first thing you have to do is recognize that you're not just the employee, unless that's what you want. Now, there are some people, particularly in a solo practice, there are some people that I mean, basically that's what they want. You know, I want to make enough money to pay the bills and pay me X, and I don't want to go anywhere else you know, from there. I don't want to build anything from there. And that's okay. But recognize that that's what you're doing. So that's the first thing that, and most important thing, I think, uh, that I see as a mindset issue that people need to work on. Yeah, I made a, uh, I'm going to call it a bad joke, whether it's funny or not. Was the uh, So a lawyer, a director of marketing, and a business owner walk into a restaurant and the hostess says, oh, I thought this was going to be a table of three people, not just one. And I think that's the spot that so many lawyers find themselves in and then wonder why um, they're having so much struggle when really they're yeah. doing three or five or 10 full-time jobs themselves with the limited amount of time that they have. Correct. And not doing any of them particularly well. I mean, that's, you know, that's what it comes down to. And so you have to recognize that there are things that other people are going to do much better than you are. And the, the, the first thing that, that, that I find that always surprises me, and it shouldn't, but it does, it's when people are doing their own financial things, keeping their own books. The, I, I mean, I knew right away, the last thing I wanted to do was me keeping the books, because if I mess that up, the ripple effect is so huge, you know, I don't even want to think about it. Now that doesn't mean I didn't look at the books. I looked at them with, with an eagle eye, um, you know, but 
but I wanted somebody else to be doing my bookkeeping. I want an accountant to be taking care of the taxes, telling me if there's any issues, working on any tax planning we need to do, et cetera. So sometimes it can be hard for people, especially in the beginning, like, I don't have that much money. I'm afraid to spend the money, but you have to set some priorities and recognize that initially, particularly in the beginning, there are certain things that you need to put in somebody else's hands in order for you to ultimately be successful. I call that my, I don't want to go to federal prison fund. That is my <laughs> accountant, CPA, financial advisor. I'm like, state prison? I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not looking forward to it, but I think I can make it federal prison. Yeah. No, uh, no, I'm, I'm totally yeah. kidding. Never make it. Yes. <laughs> As a former criminal attorney, I get it. Yeah, Correct. I agree. I agree. There are things that I just don't want to be getting a letter uh, from certain people. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so I think the CEO mindset is number one. The, number two is the money mindset. Like, how do you really think about money? Um, do you think money's a good thing? Do you think, and there are a lot of, of people that I've talked to that when you, when you start to dig down, you know, they do believe the adage of like, you know, money's the root of all evil, meaning money is evil. Money's not evil. Money pays your bills, you know, money pays your salary. Uh, it's what you do with the money that's important. Uh, I've talked to people, and, and I was one of these people a long time ago. Money burns a hole in my pocket. I actually believe that. I'm like, no, 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 it doesn't. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to buy into things that you may have been told along the way. Um, you don't have to buy into it. And you need to have the right thought patterns about money as you're planning your business. And as you know, you're figuring out how much do I need to set aside? How much do I need for this? How much do I need for that? So, so there's work that, that people need to do on their money mindset. And then the third area where I see a lot of issues come up is in what people now call imposter syndrome. And, and I break that down into two, two aspects. One is knowledge base. Now, you know, there are, there are people who are not confident enough and shouldn't be in their technical knowledge. And, but you, there's ways to deal with that. That's why we have CLEs. That's why there are mentoring programs. You know, you can deal with that. But the other side of it is the performance side and women lawyers that, that feel like I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough in court. I'm not good enough to handle a big case. I'm not good enough to handle uh, big ticket legal issues. And there's no good reason why they feel like they're not. I mean, I think all lawyers have the, um, or anybody that does any work in, in, in certainly in the courtroom has that experience of, why didn't I say this? Why didn't I argue that? Why didn't I ask that question at the deposition? I mean, we all relive it once we come out and, and think, oh, I did that really well, but why didn't I do this and this and this? And when you can take that and turn it into, and okay, the next time I will ask that question, I will make that argument. I, you, that's when you get out of this imposter syndrome because you understand that nobody's perfect, um, it'd be great if we were, but we're not. You learn from the things that you've done and learn how to do it better the next time. But that doesn't mean you're bad at what you do or you're not good enough at what you do. So it's really a confidence issue. 
So I always, you, you bring that up in such a good way. So I want to ask it from the chicken and the egg standpoint, right? Because mm -hmm. there's a component of law school where literally for three years, they just berate you on thinking critically and turning you into doing exactly what you talked about. And so I'm always curious if it's, it's got to be a little bit of both, right? Where like law attracts a certain type of person and then law school makes you into a certain type of person. And both of those people hate themselves more than anybody else does. So... <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 I get you. I get what you're saying. And you're right. You know, law school, you spend three years getting getting torn down and 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 hopefully you build yourself back up because your skin toughens up. And I think women have to learn this lesson, maybe more than men do. Um, but you've got to have some tough skin. And I've been you know, we've all had this. I've been berated by judges. For no good reason. It's just happened. Um, I've had to deal with very difficult opposing counsel who, you know, have treated me in a way that was uncalled for. Um, but on the other hand, I've had some fabulous judges, you know, and, and who have been um, very complimentary. And I particularly, particularly appreciated that when it was in front of a client. Um, and, and a judge would say, Mr. So-and-so, and, and they would do it with opposing counsel too. I want you to know you've been very well represented today. And when you hear that, you know, initially like, oh, the judge says it to everybody, but then you think, no, you know what? That's true. He was very well represented today. Win or lose, he was well represented. And that's what you should expect from your lawyer. So when you, we all tend to focus on when we have those negative experiences, but there's also very positive experiences. And when a client says, thank you, I've had many clients along the way and they'd say, I just don't know what I would, would have done. You know, thank you. Thank you for the way you explained it. Thank you for what you did for, you know, whatever it is. And so you take that and, and, and you savor it. I have a, um, it's called a gratitude box where I keep, I, you know, you get handwritten notes or emails from clients. Thank you. And I keep that there. And when I would feel like particularly like down on myself, I would pull those out and start reading them. And that would bring me back to reality. You know, you're not perfect, but look at what you've done for these clients and, and you need to keep doing this for people. Yeah. I always, to me, like what, what you're talking about, I always look at it as sort of like that, um, like a pool of water. And so we've got the case, you know, we drop the rock in the pool of water, we create these ripples. And then by the time you've got, you know, your input on the case, plus what happened to the client, plus how it impacts their family, plus how it impacts their future, regardless of what kind of law, you've got all these ripples going and intersecting. And yeah. so it's crazy to think about how that one case could impact 20 people, 30 people, 100 people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right, ready to transition over to marketing? Let's go to marketing, yes, yes. Right. We've got the right mindset in place, now we're on the marketing side. So talk to me about how we find that success from a marketing standpoint. Sure, so the first thing, although some people, um, not as much as they used to, but some people fight against this, is what's your niche? I call it niche, other people call it niche, doesn't matter. You know, what kind of law do you practice? Well, I can do this, I can do, no, no. What kind of law do you want to practice? Are you good at? And will you be focused on? So, so that's that's number one. And it could be, you know, a couple areas that you focus on, but it's not going to be five because you're not going to be very effective trying to market to five different types of clients. So what's your niche? 
who really is your ideal client? I had somebody say to me the other day, oh, a trusted estates lawyer, who is great. I really like her. And she's like, no, I, I, I want to help anybody over the 18 who needs a will. I'm like, well, okay, you can do that. But that is just a lesson in frustration if you're trying to reach anybody over the age of 18. So, you know, working on those really specific details of an ideal client becomes very important. And I think a lot of times people either haven't heard the term or, or if they have, they don't give it much emphasis. Well, you know, my client, yeah, I my client's like in their 40s and needs a divorce. You need to be a lot more specific than that so that you can hone your message, of course, just to that person. So sometimes I give people the example of, it's not lawyers, it's dentists. So there was a dentist and and who was working with a coach who works with uh, uh, medical professionals. And, and the coach said to him, okay, so, so who's your, you know, who's your client? Who's your ideal client? And the dentist says, well, anybody with teeth. And then the dentist stops and says, or anybody without teeth, I can help them all. You know, there's a, but you compare that to the dentist who said, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to be the dentist to people who are afraid to smile because they're missing teeth, you know, and that's the dentist who has the, I don't know, here they call them smile design centers or smile centers, something like that, but a very, very focused practice. Who do you think has a uh, happier business and a business that's making more money? It's going to be the Smile Design Center, of course, okay? And, and so sometimes I get lawyers that can see it much clearer when they look at a different professional. But the idea, of course, is that you want to send a very limited specific message to the person who is your ideal client, the person that you work best with, that you like working with, that you can help the most, and who has a profitable case. A lot of times I find women, again, in particular, like skip over the profit part, but I want to help people. I, totally understood, totally understood. But you can't help people who can't afford your services until you have enough profit in your business to allow you to do that. And then you can do all of the free services you want, but you've got to start with the profit. And then you can look to expand, you know, your ability to take on non-paying clients or low bono or pro bono, how, however you're going to phrase it. So, you know, who is it? What are you saying to them? I had interviewed a, um, she's a terrific divorce lawyer down in Virginia Beach and her firm historically has only represented women. And it's the same idea. It's like, not that they don't like men, but they made the decision very early on, we're going to focus on women, we're going to focus on the issues that women deal with in divorce. And we're going to stay focused on that, because that's who we serve best. That's who we like to serve. And we're going to build our business around that. And they did it very, very successfully. So you got to figure out what's the message you're going to send to that client. And that the message is, how do you solve their problems? And of course, you find out what their problems are by talking to them and using the words that they use to tell you what their problems are. You know, people don't typically come and say, 
you know, in some legal sense, like they wouldn't come to me in a, in a um, disability case and say, they've denied my request for hearing and I need to file a request. I mean, they've denied my request for reconsideration and I need to file a request for hearing and prepare for the administrative law judge. Like they don't know all that stuff. You know, they call me and say, I cannot believe I got denied. Why can't they see that I'm disabled? And so, you, you know, I take from their words, what is the problem that, that, that they're dealing with the way that they see it? Because that's how you're going to uh, write your marketing message, no matter where you're marketing, online, offline, it doesn't matter. Um, which leads to the next part. Where is the ideal client? You know, sometimes people get stuck on, I want the silver bullet. I want to pay company X, you know, that promises me they're going to send me a bazillion qualified leads, you know, every month. And, and then you pay a whole lot of money and it never happens because it, it doesn't work that way. People need to hear that you understand their problem. You understand their problem the way that they express it, that you can help them with their problem. And they feel like they know you at some level and they can trust you. That comes from different ways. You know, online, I think a lot of it comes from video because people feel like they've seen you, they've heard you, literally seen you and heard you. Offline, you know, in person, um, opportunities, whether it is in person with potential clients or in person with potential referral sources, which is a whole nother, a whole nother topic. Uh, but people need to see you and experience you and hear from you, whether you're speaking directly to them, you're on video, it's things that you're posting on social media. They need to get that experience of you before they're going to pick up the phone and call you or send you an email. Um, and, uh, but, but I hear from people when, when it's a question of like, well, where, you know, where are you going to market your services? And they will say, but I don't like X. I don't like Facebook. I don't like TikTok. If your clients happen to be on TikTok, I don't like, and, and I will tell them, I, absolutely. I was the same way in my practice. I kept hearing I should be on YouTube. I should be on YouTube. I'm like, I hate YouTube. Are you kidding? I'm not going to do YouTube. Why would I do YouTube? And I put it off for a while until I realized, wait a minute, you know, who's using YouTube? What's the age group? Who, who are these people? Once I looked at that, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I think a lot of my potential clients might be there. And so one thing led to another and we built this YouTube channel and um, all of a sudden we had thousands of followers on social security disability, like one of the most boring things you could probably ever find on YouTube. And yet people wanted to know. And I got a lot of clients um, using that channel. So. Well, and that's like, and look, obviously the ultimate, like if you look at the Venn diagram, the things you like and the things your ideal clients like, you really want to hit where those two things oversect. But if they don't, you're going to pick the one that the clients like before you pick. Well, if you want to be successful, you got to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was the key. I had to get over my, you know, I hate YouTube uh, mindset. I, it's like, who cares what you hate? That's not the point. Um, the point is that's where the clients are. And, you know, that's where you need to be too. So, so you have to look at all of those, all of those aspects to figure out 
who you're marketing to, where they are that you're going to market to them, and what are you going to say to them? And it's not going to be, of course, I'm a great lawyer. I've got a bazillion years experience. I'm a super lawyer. I'm a this. I'm, I mean, we love those accolades. I love them. You know, I love getting them. But clients could care less. They want to know who are, they assume your competence. Okay. I mean, they assume you know what you're doing. You went through law school, you passed the bar, you've been working for a while. They're going to assume you know what you're doing. That's not the point for most people. It's, how can you help me? And do I feel comfortable with you? Now, along those lines, again, this is a whole separate aspect to marketing, but along those lines, referral-based marketing, of course, is huge because if you have been recommended by their social worker, their therapist, their doctor, uh, another lawyer that they've used, you know, you, you've got a leg up right from the very beginning because someone that they know and trust has already recommended you. The other way is if you can get on somebody else's stage, you know, you then become an expert by virtue of being on somebody else's stage. And by that, I mean, you know, if you can, there are um, educational opportunities and you can be a speaker. That's what you want to go for because automatically people think if you've been asked to speak, you must be really good at what you do. So, or wink, wink, nudge, nudge, a Facebook live show. Or a Facebook live show. Absolutely. Yeah, there we go. That works too. Yeah, no, it totally does. It totally <laughs> does. Yeah, it totally, it totally does. But that's because people, not only are you on somebody else's stage, which is great to begin with, it's also that people can actually hear you interacting with someone else and say, oh, I like what she's saying. I like what he's saying. I need that help. So funny, funny story along those lines. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with the advertising rules in every state. Florida, for the most part, I think has the worst advertising rules for lawyers. I've heard that. Yes, I know Florida lawyers. I have heard and understand that to be true. So the best part, though, is we have the Orlando Family Magazine, in which I have won the Awesome Attorney Award several years. So now the Florida Bar says I can specifically refer to myself as awesome. It is now readily verifiable because I've been given an award that calls me awesome. So I love it. I love it. That's great. That is great. <laughs> every year that becomes my favorite one, more than the super lawyer, more than the best lawyer, whatever, because now I can say I am awesome. And the Florida You are Bar totally awesome. Absolutely. I love that. All right. Anything? Uh, so we've got a, uh, about ten minutes or so left. Can we move on to management okay. or anything else? Yeah. In marketing? Yeah. No. No. There. I, I, a whole lot else in marketing, but I think we've hit the highlights. So, um, you know, management. It's to me, it's all about processes and getting the right processes in place and and recognizing that, you know, in the beginning, it takes a while to build it up. Okay. And so, don't beat yourself up if you don't have every process in place perfectly, like from day one, it doesn't work that way. But the things that you want to think about a client onboarding, you know, client intake and onboarding. So the intake map that out very specifically because it is better to say no to cases that are not a good fit or are going to be problem clients than to say yes, because you're afraid you're not going to get another case. You are going to get another case. 
you know, set out your parameters. We had pretty strict parameters and people would get upset if we wouldn't take their case, but we always gave them a referral, like to lawyer referral, but we always said, look, we're not able to help you. It doesn't fit into the specific guidelines. My, my team would say that that Sharon has set, but we're just giving you, you know, our opinion. Uh, and here, I want to give you a number uh, you can call so you can talk to another lawyer. Um, client or onboarding, make sure you want to make sure that clients know what to expect. What's the process? You know, how long is it going to take? And none of that's written in stone because we know that it's not always within your control, but you can give them basic guidelines of how long different, different steps in the process are going to take. You also want to set out what they can expect and what the boundaries are for you. So for example, you know, I think like most places, most law firms now, we would say, listen, and I would tell clients, look, if you call and you have a question or you email and you have a question or you have a problem, someone is get, going to get back to you within one business day. Understand that, that, you know, when we're working on somebody else's case, we want to stay focused on that. We will get back to you. And, and I would tell them, if nobody gets back to you, you email me directly and tell me that because I'll look into what's going on and I'll make sure you get an answer. I almost never got one of those emails um, every once in a while, but for the most part, people understood, my team understood we, you know, how quickly we were gonna respond. And I would say to clients, it may just be a response that says, we're still waiting for an answer on the appeal we fought, okay? but it's, it's an answer and we've touched base with them. Um, you have to look at your staffing, uh, your team. Who do you need? Do you need an employee versus an independent contractor? And what does that really mean? Do you need uh, some type of virtual assistant? Um, what about remote versus in-house if you actually have office space? What are your requirements there? And that's, you know, that's really changing right now. Um, but but you need to, to look at that and then you need to be able to put together procedure manuals for your staff. And the way, you know, one of the things that I really worked on, because initially I was like, I'm going to write all these procedures. Okay. And I did. And it didn't work because I wasn't the one doing th that part of the work. And so pretty quickly I said, oh, wait, I need to have my team writing these. Um, we need to work on them together. But it's so much easier if you have written procedures on all of the stuff that you do routinely so that you, when you bring somebody new on board and you're going to teach them, you know, your ways, they have a reference manual uh, when they forget. So, you know, th those are things that you need. You need the financial management system. Hold on. Can I, I want to jump in for a second before you go. So yeah. In terms of the procedures, I think that has been the best part of the work from home stuff because you can screen record yourself or somebody doing it. You can transcribe the screen recording. You can type the, the tweaks. Now you've got a video of it. You've got a text of it. You've got audio of it. And you can really hit however anybody learns. That's exactly right. And that's a great point because um, uh, that's one thing that it has taught us. And you have the other thing you have to remember is it's not a one and done. So periodically, sit down with your team you're going to sit down with your team whether it's quarterly or or twice a year we we ended up going about twice a year and just look at how are you doing things are there 
ways we can do it better or have we actually changed how we're doing things but we we didn't put it in the uh, uh, in the procedures so let's get it updated um, because frequently we would just sort of morph from one to another because we found something that worked better but then you had to catch up and say oh wait you know if somebody new comes in they won't know how to do things so um, you want to make sure that that all gets updated and, so um, I, and then I cut yeah. you off you're talking about financial management and I just yeah, the, sorry. The, the the whole financial side of things and, and that's what I was referencing before you know get a bookkeeper have an accountant look at your but look at your numbers that sometimes it's like people are almost afraid to look at their numbers they, they're afraid of what they're going to see you've you've got to sit down I mean I was looking at those numbers every week in terms of money in money out for sure and then you know some of the longer term things I would look at on a monthly basis but you've got to look at those numbers to see where are you where are you going what's the trend what do you need to do to tweak it you know if things if if you find that that suddenly cash flow your cash is not flowing in as well as it was well what's going on is it that you know if your contingent fee that you're losing a lot of cases and now you got to change your intake parameters or if you're billing is it a collections issue you know what is it so that you can make some changes or is it just time to raise your rates if you if you're billing on an hourly basis or even a flat fee is it time to just raise the fee uh, so so those are things you can't again this it's they're not they're not one and done this is constantly um uh, something that you need to constantly reevaluate and make sure that that your cash flow is right and your numbers are right and if they aren't fix them because you can fix them that's the thing that people need to understand you can you have to work on it well it always brings me back to the uh the albert einstein quote of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results and I think that's the biggest, I, I, listen, I get different pushback than you. We're just doing the marketing stuff. But in terms of like, well, you know, if we just do this more time, we just give this more whatever, like, all right, well, but if you're not changing anything, you're just going to get more of the same results that are bad or, you know, whatever it looks like. So it's um, true. It's true. Yeah. Although, you know, you have to give it enough time. Like, yeah, I've certainly heard from people like, well, I've been doing this for 30 days. Well, 30 days isn't going to be long enough. You, you know, you, you, you need to give you, if you're, if you're marketing, you need to give something three to six months and be evaluating your results along the way, but don't pull something after 30 days because that's clearly not enough time for you to be able to figure out, is it working or not? Um, so it makes, I just, makes total yeah. sense. All right. So as we get towards the end, is there anything else that you want to make sure we cover before we uh, start to wrap up? You know, I, I just want to say that that no matter where you are in your practice, in a solo or a small firm practice, you might be, you know, you you you've just getting going, uh, or you've been at it for a while and you've got some traction, but you're not able to to sort of make it to the. You're stuck. That's what I hear. I'm stuck. Like I made it this far. I'm stuck. Um, it's okay. You can change things, but. As you, as you just indicated, Jordan, you have to change things. You can't keep going the same way because you, you will get the same results. So there are ways to uh, change what you're doing, to make yourself more successful, no matter how you define that, uh, but certainly to make your business more stable and, and the cash flow better. 
There are ways to do that, but by, by staying stuck where you are right now, that's not going to do it. Um, and frequently it just does take another set of eyes looking at what you're doing from the outside uh, to say, you know, raise certain questions. Why, why are you doing this? Why are you doing, how about this? Let's, let's find some other ways to solve this problem that you're dealing with. So um, there is, there are ways to make it successful. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Yeah. And along those lines, I mean, I always, I also hear the, well, I don't have time to find a new person, hire a new person, train a new person. Like, then you're never going to have time. Then you're always going to be stuck in the same spot. You're, you know, you're never going to be able to make this. It's never going to be easier to make this time. The more, you know, underwater you are. That's correct. And, and, and it is a question of priorities and you have to make that a priority because if you do, it will get done. Um, and it's usually not as hard as you think it is, but that's an excuse. I don't have time. You do have time. You just haven't made this a priority. All right, so we're not going to let Sharon go without uh, one more nugget of wisdom, but I do want to talk about our next episode before we hit the end of this. Our next episode will air next week, so April 11th at 2 p.m. Eastern time, so 15 minutes after you watch this episode. We've got Chad Sinus on. Chad uh, is a EOS, um, not implementer, he's an EOS trainer. So we're talking about entrepreneurial operating systems, empowering your leadership team, and getting better results. I know EOS has made its way through the lawyer space. Um, I really enjoyed Traction, really enjoyed Rocket Fuel, really enjoyed a lot of the stuff in there. Mm -hmm. So for any of you that have dabbled with it, you'll get a ton of wisdom and insight out of Chad uh, next Monday, April 11th at 2 p.m. Eastern time. But Sharon, you have you we have covered so much in this chat and we could easily go for uh, hours more. Um, I think we're on the same page about so much of this stuff because it's it is so important. So if somebody's been listening for the last at this point forty five minutes and they don't remember anything else you said, what would be the most important takeaway for them, the biggest piece of wisdom, the best thing you can tell them so that they can be the exhibit a of a successful lawyer like yourself? I, it's this. You need to believe in yourself and your talents. You need to believe that you are here to help other people and believe that you can do it through your own law firm. You have to believe that in order for it to happen. So you believe in yourself, believe in your abilities, and you can make it happen. And isn't the beauty of that, we spend more time with ourselves than we do with anybody else, and we have an easier time convincing ourselves of things than we do anybody else. So as much as we are the problem, or we are also the solution, we have the most impact on ourselves than we do on anybody else. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much for being with us. I hope everybody who watch or listen to this enjoy the show and will join us again next week when we talk about EOS. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Jordan.